Good morning. I have the privilege of sharing scripture with us this morning and leading us in prayer. Today's scripture is from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us. You give to us grace and mercy that we do not deserve. It is in your pleasure to give us good gifts. Matthew 7:11 tells us how good you are. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Lord, to us, the way that you work is mysterious. We cannot understand it. We cannot do what you do, for we were created, and you are the creator. You are present at all times, everywhere, and all of creation is under your control. When you heal an illness, we call it a miracle. We cannot do these things. But for you, Lord, it is done as you desire, for your glory and for your good and for our good. You are the Father who gives good gifts. We are to bring to you only our requests in prayer not as a demanding, spoiled child, but as a child who knows the power of his father and is confident that it can be granted. That what we ask for is in your will, Lord, and that it will bring glory to your name. Holy Spirit, this morning we ask for your help. Guide our thoughts. Bring to our minds the requests that we are to make. Lord, I ask your blessing on the service today. Work through our worship of you. Open our hearts to you. Quicken our minds to understand your message to us today. Bring a deeper understanding of your power and your love for us. <clears throat> Draw us nearer to you. Give new energy to our fellowship. Bring boldness to our witness to those around us who need to know you. God, empower our life so that you are glorified. Lord, now do this work also specifically in Duncan this morning. Bring clarity and power and honor to you in the words that he speaks. Strengthen his body. Protect him as he speaks your words. Let the words he speak be Holy Spirit-led. Lord, remove all distractions from our minds and open our hearts to be changed by your Spirit. Lord, we ask one more thing from you this morning. There are a few in our body who are in need of healing. 
Cheryl Werner, Brenda Jorgensen's great nephew Asher, Sue Mortensen's mother Carol, Bethany Salzman's dad Kent, Brenda Levin, Mary Balke, Dan Zwicker, and others that I don't know their names of to mention. Lord, they need your healing, and we now ask in Jesus' name that they would be healed. Amen. I forgot to make an announcement. We have shore lunch today. Oh, that's good. I forgot that. Uh, shore lunch right after church. If you, it, when we all eat together, basically, who wants to do lunch at home on a Sunday? That's not good. So do it here, and the food is there, and there's plenty. So you are welcome, whether you've done it once or a hundred times or not at all. Please come and join us. It's a great way to get to know one another. We don't do it fundamentally for the food. We do it because we're a family and we want to get to know each other better. This morning, of course, we return, as you can tell from Andy's reading. Um, to the book of Acts, we begin a new section. Every book has sections in the Bible, or most of them anyway, and the book of Acts divides into these first two sections right here at chapter 3. In the first section that we finished last time, we saw Jesus ascend as the exalted king at the right hand of God, and from that exalted position, as he promised, he poured out his spirit on his apostles, and on other disciples. Peter then preaches his first apostolic sermon at Pentecost. 3,000 Jews recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. They're converted, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and give evidence of that. And finally, we looked at Luke's summary statement describing what life was like in the early church, this radical and dynamic life in the spirit that the church daily enjoyed, and they enjoyed it largely together. This second section of Acts that we begin today, and it runs through chapter 7 and into chapter 8, it traces seven episodes within church life in Jerusalem, and only Jerusalem. Luke records these to show what post-Pentecostal life was like. It's witness, it's trials, the growth of the church, but within Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we know Luke gives the outline for the whole book where he tells his disciples that when they're filled with the Spirit, they're going to give the gospel out first in Jerusalem and in concentric circles beyond that to Judea and then Samaria and then to the end of the earth. Well, this is in that section where we're talking about what's going on in Jerusalem, the innermost circle of gospel presentation. As we heard from Andy's reading today, we see Luke's account of the first of several miraculous healings in the book of Acts. And Luke reveals four major elements related to this healing. First, there is the strategic nature of the healing, the undeniability, second, of the miracle. Third, the unconditional nature of the miracle. And fourth, the source of the miracle. So first, let's look at what Luke reveals about the strategic nature of this miracle. Now, by strategic, what we mean is that though Peter was almost certainly not aware that this miracle was going to happen, the miracle had been carefully planned by God for the purpose of producing maximum kingdom impact through the gospel. The strategic nature of the miracle is, is really self-evident, and Luke writes it as he does to bring this out. 
when he talks about the subject of this miracle, this lame man, the place of the miracle, the temple, and the timing of the miracle at the hour of prayer. Luke says in verse 2, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. That has strategy written all over it, if you're reading this from that perspective. This man had been lame from birth. And we know from chapter 4, where this man is spoken of again, he was over 40 years old. That meant that, among other things, this man's condition was incredibly well established among the 100,000 or so people who lived in Jerusalem year-round. Many, many of these Jerusalem Jews knew of this man's lifelong affliction. He was probably even more well-known than we would normally imagine for a city this size because he was a beggar and he practiced his begging in a very public venue near the temple. Begging was a big part of the social welfare system in the Eastern world, and it's still widely practiced in a lot of places in the third world today. It's not necessarily considered tasteful or appropriate in our more prosperous Western world, but this keeps an awful lot of disabled people from starving. And so we see that dynamic here. This lame man was not placed at the one of the temple gates by accident. That's part of why Luke gives this detail in here. Jews in Jerusalem went to the temple multiple times a week. Some of them went every day. It was a place where they met friends. They unfortunately conducted some business there, and they offered animal sacrifices and did other things of ritual significance within Judaism. This is why the temple was the logical gathering place for the early church when it was just in Jerusalem. Luke said that this man was carried and placed. Now, presumably, that was by his family at one of the gates leading into the temple, and God strategically had planned that and obviously uses that for his purposes. We do not know where the specific gate was located in relationship to the temple. There is no record of any beautiful gate anywhere in antiquity, even though it's clear from Luke's response here that everybody in his time, knew this as the beautiful gate. Someday, if the Lord tarries, we'll have an archaeological finding of something that says the beautiful gate, and we'll go, oh, th there it was. Anyway, we don't know now. There were many walls in concentric areas leading up to the temple. Some were very far away, some were closer, to divide all of these various courts that they had and porticos. And in each one of those walls, there were several gates around the temple. So we're not sure which one. We can guess that this man was placed at one of the gates where there was a higher traffic flow because begging would have been more profitable there. Again, all of this means that a significant number of Jews had to walk right past this man in order to get to the temple. And over 40 years, surely, just about every Jew in Jerusalem would have at some point had exposure to this guy. The Old Testament law was very clear about the responsibility that Jews had to people who were weak and destitute, and giving alms to people who were blind or lame uh, was an important part of that. So this man is strategically located near the temple when people are thinking about God, thinking about the law, and so he's become a fixture in Jerusalem. If you're witnessing this healing, 
and you're recounting it to a Jew who wasn't there, all you would need to say is, it was that guy that's always at the beautiful gate. Everybody would have known who he was. So his implication by putting this in there, this was no accident. This was intended. Notice the strategic timing, which Luke also includes here in verse 1. The people were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. First century Jewish historians tell us that the ninth hour, which in our verbiage is three o'clock, was the time of the evening sacrifice at the temple. Jewish law, Mosaic law, required there's going to be two offerings every day at the temple, one in the morning and one in the evening, and three o'clock was the evening sacrifice. In addition to the sacrifice, there was some sort of prayer gathering. Again, we don't know the specifics about this, but this was a time when people would go in conjunction with the evening sacrifice probably to go and pray. And so devout Jews like the apostles would have stopped what they were doing and they would have walked up the Temple Mount to pray. That's what good devout Jews did at this time. So again, from a strategic point of view, 3 p.m. every day would have been something of a temple rush hour with a lot of people coming through these gates. All of those details conspire to give this miracle both maximum exposure and maximum impact to the Jews who witnessed it. We see in verse 9 how wildly successful this strategy was. After the healing miracle, Luke records, and all the people saw him, speaking of the lame man, walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Verse 11, when he clung to, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. This is a dramatic response to this. The people responded just as God intended. They recognized this guy... Luke does tell us that is the one that was hopelessly disabled. In response to the healing, they're filled with wonder and amazement. And then they run together like a herd of cattle to follow the apostles and this guy. There's an intense sense of anticipation. They're ready for something to happen here because something has happened. Now, we know from the subsequent events in chapters 3 and 4 why God works so strategically in this miracle. Because Peter, if you read the next two sermons on this day and the next day, he references this miracle in both of those sermons. Okay? So God clearly intended to use this miracle as the basis for two gospel presentations. God used this to prevent event to provide a powerful context for preaching the good news about Jesus that many Jews heard and that, as we'll see, bears a lot of fruit. The Lord strategically structures the events connected to this healing to achieve significant kingdom advancement from this event. Now, having said all that about the strategic element here, we have to be careful about putting all that on God all the time. We have to be careful here not to make God into some sort of marketing genius or to assume that in order for him to work, he needs a big crowd or he wants a big crowd. That's America, okay? That's bigger is better American mentality. 
The view that holds that the megachurch is God's highest expression of church life. They do some things incredibly well. They do some things very poorly that are important. The more the people, the better is not found in the Bible. But that is simply revealed to be, almost in certain cases, not the point. God does not need big numbers or marketing strategies in order to do something important. He uses that when he has to, but sometimes he's very counterintuitive in terms of the number of people and the locations and the timing of the venues that are very important to him. He doesn't always choose to do his most impressive feats in the presence of a whole lot of people. We see this in Luke's version of the Christmas story, don't we? He brings forth a multitude of the heavenly host at night. We can't even imagine what that's like, a multitude of angels at night in glory. It's got to be one of the more impressive scenes in all of the Bible. And yet, that's, of course, fitting because that's, that's in, in coordination with the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. And that's God's way of saying, this is a big deal. Here's 10 billion angels to do this. And yet, it was done out in the countryside, <laughs> nobody around except a handful of shepherds. Okay? okay, that's terrible marketing. So God does not always see fit to capitalize or leverage these spectacles into big public relations events, except when it serves his purpose. And in this instance, God very clearly and strategically plans this miracle to take place in such a way so that it would have maximum exposure. In addition to the healing strategic element, another element of this miracle that Luke wants us to see is the undeniability of this miracle. Now, a miracle is, by definition, something that has no natural explanation. And Christians obviously say that that requires divine intervention. But not all miracles, even in the Bible, are equally dramatic. This miracle that Luke records here is especially dramatic. First, as we said, this man was lame from birth. That means that none of his muscles or tendons or ligaments or other necessary walking physiology would have been in working order, or at least close to functionality, and some of his walking mechanisms were doubtless completely useless. Forty years of complete inactivity means that this man's walking capacity was almost nil. They carried him, okay? Luke wants us to know he couldn't walk on his own. They carried him. They laid him down. And even if he would have had access to the kind of medical intervention required to repair what was wrong, which, of course, was impossible in the first century, no amount of medical skill or technology available, even today, would have given him the anything close to the mobility that he had as we see here. This is because the nature of this miracle is comprehensive and it's instantaneous. I'm not a doctor, but I know that something like walking requires multiple bodily systems working together to enable that skill. Muscular, skeletal, neurological systems are needed just for starters. And none of those had been operating well in the area at least required for walking. Luke, as the physician, says his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Okay? But even today, many of us know from experience, if we have a medical intervention for some injury or, or trauma of some sort, we have reconstructive surgery, whether it's hip or knee or shoulder or whatever, some of those 
produce extraordinarily good outcomes, but they don't all result in complete mobility. And even when they do, the recovery process is long and sometimes painful. This healing in Luke 3, in contrast to medical intervention, is so dramatic that the only reference point we have for this kind of thing happening is in the Bible, mostly in the miracles of Jesus. There's no other precedent for this kind of healing where the patient goes from complete immobility to instantaneous and even impressive mobility, at least in the feet and ankles. Luke's account of the actual healing begins in verse 7. And again, as a physician, he, because he knew what was going on, to some degree anyway, he was probably more blown away than most of these people. He says of the healing, and he, speaking of Peter, took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Okay, if you read of this kind of miracle happening other than in the Christian realm and in the pages of Scripture, you're, you should be skeptical about whether this is real because this man who is healed is a person, his walking mechanism would not have been functioning for 40 years. And yet this man is immediately, dramatically brought from a place of futility to standing, walking, and leaping. And Luke is so impressed by the leaping, he puts that in twice for emphasis. Now, beyond the obvious miracle of the instant healing of whatever was wrong or atrophied with his various bodily parts, how does this man know how to walk? <laughs> I mean, he never walked before. And as we all know, walking is a learned skill. It requires balance and some technique. It takes bones and muscles and tendons and ligaments all working together to produce fluid forward movement. Mastering it takes a while. Not this man. God granting the skill to walk instantly without any training or practice, it was part of the miracle. And if walking requires learned skills, leaping requires even more. And beyond the physiological aspect of this, what happened to the part of this man's human nature that causes us to learn new activities with caution and some hesitation? Where are his baby steps, okay? Where are the tentative efforts that we always begin with when we're doing something outstanding ultimately? Where's the gradual nature of this? Not this guy. He moves from a state of completely atrophied anatomy to boldly practicing highly developed skills seemingly without effort, boldly. This is like a person who's never played chess, instantly becoming a grandmaster. This is like someone who's never thrown a baseball pitching for the Brewers. This is not unlike the miracle that Luke records back in chapter 5 of his gospel with the healing of the paralytic. You remember, remember, his friends bring him in, they have to break up the roof to get him in, and at the words of Jesus, this paralytic instantly gets up, picks up his bed, and walks home, glorifying God. Okay, that's the kind of dramatic healing we're talking about here. The utter undeniability that this was a miracle of God was undeniable. A third element of the miracle that Luke records here is the unexpected nature of the miracle. Again, by definition, all genuine miracles are unexpected. You don't exactly plan for a miracle. They kind of happen all at once. But this one was especially 
unexpected. And the reason I say that is because this lame man wasn't looking or asking for a miracle. In many of Jesus' gospels, miracles, there's this preliminary back and forth discussion between Jesus and whoever it is that's being healed. Um, and Jesus will query these people frequently. Uh, do you wish to be made whole? Or what do you want me to do for you? Or do you believe that I'm able to do this? Those are direct quotes from Jesus out of the Gospels. There was often some preliminary discussion that in some way it created a sense of expectation that something supernatural was going to happen. All Luke records by way of preliminary interaction here is in verse 4. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So that's all he got. He got, look at me. That's obviously Peter's way of saying something important is going to happen here, but he's very nonspecific, isn't he? This is not at all like the miraculous healing of the man who was born blind in Luke 18, he's from Jericho, and he hears that Jesus is passing by, and he's obnoxious. He's screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me again and again. Not this guy. There are no requests at all for healing here. He certainly didn't recognize Peter or John as apostles who could heal him. And verse 3 explicitly says his request is to receive alms. That's what he was wanting. He was wanting money. He was a beggar. He had no idea what was going to happen. That's why Peter says in verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. So a fourth related and final miracle, element of the miracle, is the source of the miracle. As we'll see, as we just saw in that verse, Luke clearly indicates the source of the miracle here, but it's also implied in the very first verse of chapter 1. You'll remember that's where Luke says, in my gospel, the gospel of Luke, I revealed what Jesus began to do and to teach. And we saw that that's Luke's way of saying that the book of Acts was going to be his record of what Jesus continued to do and to teach through his apostles and the church. We have to see everything in Acts through that initial lens that Luke gives us in chapter 1, verse 1. This healing miracle was Jesus from heaven healing this lame man. Just as we saw in the Gospels as Jesus in person repeatedly healing people who were lame and blind. Whether the miracles were done by Jesus in person or from heaven through his apostolic representatives, all the healings were from Jesus. He did all of them. And that's what he says in chapter 6, when Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So there it is, right there. Peter was under no illusions that this wasn't anything other than Jesus doing this. Some believers have some rather curious notions about what it is to do or pray something in the name of Jesus. They sometimes act or pray as if invoking the name of Jesus were some sort of incantation or formula to get God to do something that won't honor him. It's a bit like the Jewish exorcists that we'll see in Acts chapter 19. You remember, remember God was doing extraordinary miracles through the Apostle Paul he invoked the name of Jesus and people would be healed and demons would be thrown out of people. So these Jewish exorcists begin invoking Jesus' name to cast a demon out of someone. These were the seven sons of Siva who were these Jewish exorcists. That didn't work out too well for them. <laughs> it wasn't a good outcome. 
<laughs> Even though they used the name of Jesus, the demonized man, of course we know, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's probably not what they were invoking the name of Jesus to do. The name of Jesus did nothing for any of these sons of Sebas. The name of Jesus is not some sort of magic word that is invoked to supernaturally transform your desires into reality. The phrase in the name of Jesus means by the authority of Jesus. Something done in the name of Jesus is a way of invoking the authority of Jesus as the reigning exalted king. Jesus, as when he lived on earth, has now authority over all things, including disease and disability. When Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, that's important, when Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, invokes his name, he's authoritatively calling on this man's bodily systems to submit to the authority of Jesus and receive healing. He's calling on his naturally cautious soul to instead boldly rise and leap by his authority over this man's body and soul, Jesus instantly and miraculously repairs and regenerates all those destroyed and depleted bodily elements. He miraculously gives this man who had never walked the skill to instantly walk and the boldness to leap and praise him. Any miracle in the Bible always reminds us of the tremendous creative power of God. Recreative, but creative as many individual miraculous elements were part of this particular healing, and there were multiple, obviously, Jesus is at least using pre-existing materials with this man. Okay. okay, however dilapidated it was, at least this man had an existing body and soul and brain. This miracle pales in comparison to when God, by the word of his mouth, creates nothing or creates an entire universe out of nothing. This miracle, as dramatic as it is, frankly doesn't compare to God creating from two cells a living, breathing human being in the womb of an expectant mother. That process of creation is countless times more complex and impressive than this one. As the creator, Jesus has infinite power to create and heal and bring life. And even more impressive than the creation miracle, and this miracle here is God's sovereign authority and miraculous power to save a sinner. Do we understand that? We saw in Ephesians that before we were saved, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before God redeemed us, we were spiritually dead, lifeless and completely unable to respond to God. It's accurate to say we were spiritual zombies, walking around as if we were alive, but really dead in the most important way, unresponsive to God and the things of God. We weren't just spiritually sick. We weren't in need of some encouragement. We didn't need to make a good decision for God. We were dead. We were needing spiritual resurrection from the dead if we were able to be able to hear the call of God, much less respond to it. Whether we knew it or not, before Jesus, we had a ruler, spiritual ruler, Satan. Blissfully ignorant we were of the perilousness 
of our position. We saw nothing amiss with living in the kingdom of darkness. We didn't even know we were in the kingdom of darkness. That's just who we were as the sons of disobedience. We weren't controlled by God. We weren't in control of our own lives. Paul says we were slavishly controlled by the bodily passions and desires that were completely self-centered. Although we had no idea the fact we were living, Paul says, under the wrath of God. As Jonathan Edwards said, all your righteousness would have no more influence toward God to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a fallen rock. That was our plight, and we were blissfully indifferent to all of it. We would never have believed the truth about ourselves or seen the peril of our fallen condition apart from the miracle of the new birth. In salvation, we're brought from death to life. God reveals the truth about our desperate condition. We see it as our most catastrophic problem. So we run in terror to the cross and find new life, a new heart, and new direction. That's the greatest miracle imaginable. We must never forget that. So as impressive as this miracle in Acts chapter 3 is, it can't hold a candle to one sinner repenting. We know even from our text today that the miracle of salvation is infinitely more impressive than even this miraculous healing, because as we've already said, the main reason God performs the miracle is to provide a hearing for the saving message of the gospel. Okay? So impressive as this miracle is, Christ is using it as an opening for the gospel. That is to give the gospel a greater hearing and more credible hearing among the Jews. This miracle that we've seen today, this is the opening act for the headliner, which is the gospel. In show business, the opening act is the (laughs) warm-up. The star of the show comes after the opening act. The gospel is the star of the show. Jesus is the star of the show and his saving message. Only the gospel can raise the spiritually dead and turn a zombie into a person in their right mind. Only a gospel can bring a rebel sinner to repent of their beloved sin and dramatically turn to God. Only the gospel can cause a person who has lived entirely for himself or herself to begin living for God and for other people. Only the gospel can bring peace to our souls and joy unspeakable and full of glory into the spiritual black hole that is the sinner's heart. And only the gospel can give us the hope of eternal bliss with God in glory. So what's the point of this for us? Well, for me, when I look at the miracles of God, the point's often similar, and that is whether the miracle on display is this miraculous healing or the creation of a new life or the universe or the salvation of a sinner, God is a miracle-working God. That's what he does. The problems we face, whatever they may be, and some of them are very big, but they're no match for God. And we know that whatever trial we may be facing. God's in complete control of it. He's already drawn the parameters of it. He's limited it in such a way so that it would only do us what is ultimately for our good. Do we believe that? If we need healing, God can and will heal us if that's what's ultimately best for us and bring glory to him. The same God who heals the sick and creates new life and saves sinners is more than able to handle what we're going through today. Do we believe that? May God give us the grace to allow this story to build faith in us to believe that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we ask, think, or imagine that which will bring him the most glory and us the most joy. Let's pray.
God, I'm just so grateful that you're a good God. That really is at the basis of so much of what we've said today. You are good. And you are especially good to your children. And, and God, we know from experience that that does not mean that you keep us from trial. Sometimes you allow us to go through trial because you're good. And because your desire for us is not to be comfortable, but to be like Jesus. God, help us to keep your value system always in our minds. Father, so often we just want what's easy. We just want the greasy slide. And you're working to conform us to the image of Christ. Father, please help us to see the difficulties in our life as the loving instruments that you bring into our lives to shave off those parts of us that don't look like your son. And Father, for those today, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray, God, that you would speak to them the great, tremendous need they have to know you and that they would run to the cross and find forgiveness and redemption in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.